Hear the word of God from Psalm 98. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Psalm 98, a psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous singing and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fill it. Let the world and everybody that dwells in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are y'all doing this morning? Awesome, thank you. I got one response. <laughs> one person's awake, everybody else is ready to fall asleep. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to begin this morning by sharing with you something that might shock you. Now some of you have likely heard this before, but those, others of you, this will be something new. And especially for those of you who adore Christmas music, this will be one of those I remember where I was kind of moments. In fact, I had made it all the way to seminary before someone had first pointed this out to me, and not just to me, but to a whole group of students. And it's about the song, Joy to the World. And I say this with, with grave seriousness. I mean, when we were told this as students, we were ready to, to cast this guy out like he was a heretic. So please don't pick up your stones. Be patient with me. You may want to sit down for this. Okay, good. Joy to the World is not a song about the birth of Jesus. Okay. Isaac Watts, known as the father of English hymnody, was born into a family of religious dissenters in the 1670s. His father was in prison when Isaac was a baby due to his nonconformity to the Church of England. Now, in reading about Watts, he honestly has the same kind of story as other brilliant minds in history. I mean, he was learning Latin by four, Greek by nine, French at 11, and Hebrew at 13. For comparison, and, and you can ask Arthur and Stephanie to attest to this, but their son Samuel is, is, I mean, the kid's a genius. I mean, he's about four or five, and he's already using words in, in perfect sentences that I didn't know until I was in high school. Now, I think that's a compliment to him and not a knock on me. I mean, seriously, the kid's probably getting calcu a calculus textbook for Christmas. So, so, so Samuel is on the same trajectory in terms of pure genius as, as Watts. Now, Watts used to complain to his father about the lack of life in the, in the seeking of the church. I mean, you can hear his brilliance in his complaint. 
to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. Now, people don't talk like that anymore, so let me, let me try to translate for us here. He's essentially saying the worship of the congregations in England are lifeless when they sing the psalms. Now, that's pretty bold. Tired of his complaints, Watt's father challenged him to write something that would inspire, and so he accepted the challenge. Watts wrote timeless classics like Behold the Glories of the Lamb, and When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Okay, okay, let's back up. Back to the part about joy to the world not being about the birth of Jesus. I mean, what's up with that? Isn't that the whole point of Christmas? How can this be a Christmas song then? I mean, we sing this every Christmas, joy to the world. Watts wrote Joy to the World around 1719 as he was meditating on Psalm 98. And Psalm 98 doesn't look to the Messiah's birth, but to his second coming. So this is an Advent song. Now I, see, I still see the skepticism on some of your faces. So let's look at the lyrics together. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Now I get it, that first line screams incarnation. But at Jesus' incarnation, the earth didn't receive him. John tells us as much in his gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 1.11 Ultimately, he, Jesus was rejected, as Isaiah foretold. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. A pretty stark contrast, right? Now look at the song's third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Now this is a beautiful lyric filled with hope and joy. I mean, your, your heart probably longs to sing that right now, and I believe it will ring true one day. But let the person without sins and sorrows please stand. What we experience today fits better with what Jesus foretold in the Gospel of Mark. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Mark 13, 8. Now look at the final verse, which I might add is my favorite. Just throwing that out there. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now according to joy to the world, the nations will serve as proof to the glories of God's righteousness. Righteousness meaning the Father through the Son and in the Spirit giving the gift of justice to repentant sinners. But just listen to some of the world news headlines today and, and you hear the nation's dread, not joy. French Jews live in fear amid rising anti-Semitic acts. Congo Ebola outbreak is second largest, second deadliest. Dutch church holds 800-hour service to save family from deportation. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Even the good isn't all good. You see, though God reigns over every single thing, and he can take every single circumstance and use it for his glory and our good, 
we know that the nations do not yet seek to intentionally prove the glories of God's righteousness. They don't feel remorse about their sinfulness, nor do they affirm God's judgment, which means they don't embrace his pardon. So hear me out. Joy to the world is a song about the second coming and eternal reign of Jesus. It's a, it's a Christmas song in the same way that Psalm 98 is a Christmas song. A song that we desperately need. A song that should ultimately draw us to reflect on Jesus' birth and to look ahead with joyful anticipation for his return. It's a song about better days. But it's a song that we're invited to sing now, even now. And surprisingly enough, the song invites us to sing in this present tension with joy. Psalm 98 is a song of redemption sung by the redeemed to their redeemer, their king. It's an enthronement psalm. And it's a song that never grows old. It's a new song in the most glorious sense of the word. Now, Psalm 98 can easily be divided into, into three sections, and, and we can view these in a couple of different ways. But what I want to do this morning is to reflect on what it means to be people of the kingdom, and in, in particular, why people of the kingdom are joy-filled people. According to Tim Mackey, joy is an attitude that kingdom people adopt, not because of good circumstances, but because of God's love and promises. It's our future destiny, not our current struggles, that determine our joy as we anticipate our future redemption. Joy isn't about ignoring the negative aspects of life, but rather it's a profound decision of faith and hope in Jesus' life and love. So with that being said, I have three reasons this morning why kingdom people are joyful people, and each reason focuses on the person of Jesus and the kingdom he is bringing about and each reason highlights the main point of Psalm 98, which is this. Jesus, as our Savior, King, and Judge, brings good news of great joy that blesses all the earth. Jesus, as our Savior, King, and Judge, brings good news of great joy that blesses all the earth. So let's get started. Reason number one, Jesus as rescuer. God's people rejoice because God's covenant faithfulness to Israel has revealed his salvation before the nations. Now, the most obvious thing we can say about the first stanza of, of Psalm 98 is that salvation is its theme, for it appears in each of the first three verses. The Lord has earned, revealed, and displayed his salvation. Specifically, the language used in verses 1 through 3 would have been reason for the people of Israel to remember an event like the Exodus, God's victory over Egypt and also for them to look ahead with great anticipation for a future glory that they, that's awaiting them. God would be with his people as people would be with him. Now the exhortation the psalmist gives us in verse 1 is to sing a new song in response to the Lord's works. Now who remembers what the Israelites did after God had defeated the Egyptians at the Red Sea? This is not rhetorical. They sang a song. They sang a song, and not just any song. They sang a new song. Here a verse from Exodus 15, 11 through 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. 
You see, Israel is commemorating and celebrating the victory of God. The overflow of their heart is both gratitude for their rescue and celebration for the God who reigns because his reign has secured their freedom compared to the, the, the oppression they experienced under the Pharaoh. So Israel celebrates as benefactors of their Lord's victory. They identify with their king of glory, but they also recognize something very important about themselves. In fact, they didn't even need to recognize it because it was so true to their life. It was so true to their experience. They were a people in need of rescue. And they were rescued. They were not forgotten. God remembered his people. And we too, we too are a people in need of rescue. But we have to recognize our bondage before we can ever rejoice in God's rescue. You see, people who are sick know they need healing. People who are lonely, they long for companionship. People who are on the run, they seek refuge. They know their life's in danger, and so they want safety. And those in bondage know, know they need rescue. Those in bondage to sin know they need rescue. You see, church, ever since the fall of Adam, we have been a cursed people longing for God's rescue, longing for him to make good on his promise to send a child who would deal a fatal blow to sin and death. God promised to address the curse through the seed of Abraham. Now, if you follow the storyline throughout the Old Testament, you you get a, a more detailed description of who this promised child would be. But ultimately, the Old Testament closes we know, we, have, we know we're looking for this, this prophet like Moses, this king like David. But then we get the intertestamental period. We get 400 years of silence and violence. And then the New Testament opens up with the birth of a baby who was born a king. Hear the words from the angel Gabriel to Mary about who her son will be. He says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And what is Mary's response? Fearful? Trembling? I mean, she just saw an angel, right? No, she has the the most appropriate of all responses. She sings a song. She sings a song about the salvation come. Hear the the similarities between her song and these first three verses of Psalm 98. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So we can connect Mary's song with Psalm 98 and and Exodus 15 on this point. Singing a song of redemption is a right response to God's rescue and salvation. Singing a song of redemption is a right response to God's rescue and salvation. You see, rescued people are joyful people because they're secure in knowing the the God who had the strength to save them also has the strength to preserve them by fulfilling his covenant promises. God will do everything he said he would do. He will not forget his people. 
And so they can be joyful. They can be confident in their joy, knowing that he will do everything he set out to do. But up to this point, we've been highlighting the salvation that God has secured for Israel. But there's something else God is doing here through his faithfulness to Israel. Look at verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now let me ask you this. Why would a promise God made to the nation of Israel produce joy and blessing among the nations? I think it's important to keep in view that the intended result of of the Exodus was, was both to rescue and reveal. To rescue and reveal. God rescued Israel, but he was making himself known through his sovereignty to Egypt. Exodus 7, 5 tells us as much. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. But I think it's also helpful to look back at God's promise that he made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God promises to bless Abraham and through his promise to bless the nations. The Hebrew word here for nations literally means all the families of the earth. So God is promising a person that his family would grow into a nation and that as God's special people, they would be a blessing to the world. And by blessing here, I mean that they will have a future with God. Cursing means you have no future with God. But this is not so for the nations. The nations will have a future with God. They will be a blessed people. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, quoting Genesis 12, 3, all nations will be blessed through you. So God proclaimed the gospel to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him, through his offspring. The Lord's saving acts on behalf of Israel were evidence of his love for and faithfulness to that one nation. Out of all nations of the earth, Israel was his special people. But God's intention was never to confine his saving benefits to that one nation. He intended that his victory be revealed to every nation and that his salvation be seen by the ends of the earth. So we can sing a new song to the Lord, for he has done marvelous things. He's been faithful in keeping his promise to Israel through his saving works in Jesus. It's only by the work of God that we receive this salvation. Verse 2 makes this known to us. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. And so we rejoice in knowing that, that, that God has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And he has put his works on display for the whole world to see and know and believe. So our first reason for joy is that God's covenant faithfulness has revealed his salvation before the nations. Our second reason for joy is because Jesus is king. All the peoples of the earth should rejoice in the advancement of the Lord's present reign. So the first stanza teaches us to sing a new song, celebrating God's salvation revealed among the nations. The second teaches us what this celebrating looks like, But what I want to focus on are those involved in this worship. You see, Israel isn't alone in their singing. Verse 4 tells us, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And then verse 6 tells us who they are praising. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King, the Lord. So this blessing of salvation and rescue is the guarantee of a future with God. I mean, there's much to be joyful about. 
And God's victory over sin isn't just for Israel, but for all the earth. And it's being displayed in God's victory through Jesus, the new Israel. But here in verses 4 through 6, we have a king and his people. And so I think it's fair for us to ask, what is the kingdom of God? And what does it mean to be a part of it? Patrick Schreiner gives us a really helpful definition. It says, The kingdom of God is God's people in God's presence under God's rule receiving God's blessings. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's presence under God's rule receiving God's blessings. And then Ron Roberts helps us connect God's kingdom to our joy when he says, This is what is meant by the kingdom of God. Not the area where he rules, for God always rules everywhere but the sphere where his rule is gladly accepted. It's not the area where he rules, but the, but the space where God's rule is gladly accepted. So as we see in verses 4 through 6, kingdom people rejoice in the rule of God. Why? Verses 1 through 3 tell us because salvation has been made known. Rescue is being offered. And verses 7 through 9 will tell us because of his righteousness... Verse 9 says he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So pardon is granted. Kingdom people desire to see his kingdom advanced because wherever his kingdom reigns, there is peace with God through salvation, joy in God because of his right rule, and justice from God through his fairness and righteousness. So the question I have for you then is, do you gladly accept his rule? Does the coming reign of Jesus excite you? Do you celebrate this news? Those who love God love his statutes because his statutes reflect him. They reflect his character. They reflect God himself. But those who seek their own way over his do not love God. And they will not submit to his reign. They stand in opposition to him. They're building another kingdom. To put it simply, we cannot worship God like Psalm 98 describes if we are in rebellion against him. We cannot worship God like Psalm 98 describes if we are in rebellion against him. The way kingdom people respond in celebration of God's rescue and reign is ultimately a matter of disposition. Don't think that this is a prescription for praise. Verses 5 through 6 say, Make music with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. I mean, have you guys not met our lead pastor yet? I mean, Lawrence is one of the most joy-filled people I know. I mean, I'm honestly surprised that he doesn't blow a ram's horn every Sunday. I mean, it's probably his instrument of choice. I mean, can't can't you even just picture him? I I see him right now. He's peeking in, saying, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. (coughs) So it's not about the instruments or the performance, but about the hearts of the ones doing the playing and singing. Our hearts should reflect this kind of worship. And if they don't, why not? You see, I think many of us struggle with this idea of submission to Jesus' rule. Maybe we don't see eye to eye on everything that he deems as good, and, and so we make compromises. We, we make our own determination. I mean, we, maybe we, we say, yes, God, yes, th- these things are good, but, but not these things. These things I, I just don't see. This circumstance, this situation, I don't see how this is good, God, and so I'm going to pursue my own way. You know, we all, we all want freedom, but we're tempted to embrace the lie that true freedom can only come on our own terms. Freedom being the the ability to act without restraint, to do whatever you feel like. 
because what you feel is, is what's right. The funny thing is we'd, we'd probably be embarrassed to do everything that we wanted to do, and that's because we have disordered desires. But our society is filled with people like that, people who do whatever they want with no inhibition. You know what we call people like that? Children. We call them children. Now, am I calling us children? No. I'm saying we're like children. It's a big difference. You know, I honestly believe that the, the terrible twos have been divinely ordained by God to teach us a parable about his rebellion against him. And by terrible twos, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say at least the first five years of life. I don't know that from experience. I mean, my child's not even two yet, so I'm just, I'm, I'm being preemptive about this. I'm just trying to prepare myself for what I'm about to endure over the next many years, 18 years, <laughs> and, and maybe even on, on after that. I don't know. Um, but our, our hearts are like the, the wayward child. I mean, our hearts are like this toward God. We, we are rebellious toward Him. I mean, some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. But let me tell you about it anyway. Why not? So a few months ago, I was in the process of, of putting my then 17-month-old daughter to bed. She has a sweet little white rocking chair in, in the corner of her room, made perfect for the size of a toddler, I add, might add. And now what do you think a curious 17-month-old toddler does under the provision of her father with a rocking chair. She stands up with her back to the front of the chair and she begins to rock it. Now, of course, I tell her in a stern voice, Esther, sit down. And you know what she does? She stops. She turns around to look at me and she slowly gets down into the, in a squat with this sly smile on her face as if she is obeying my instruction. <laughs> and then she gets back up and she starts rocking the chair again. <laughs> and in that brief moment, I realized two things. First, my 17-month-old daughter can understand my instruction. That is both awesome and terrifying all at the same time. Second, my daughter, in her understanding, can willfully choose to disregard my instruction for her own. Now, for those of you who don't know me as well, when I was in high school, my mom once told me that I could win the lottery and show no emotion. Now, that may or may not be true. <laughs> I don't know. But the persistent disobedience of my daughter can build up emotions in me that at times I cannot even begin to think to suppress. <laughs> and so I tell her again, Esther, sit down. But this time I add, or I'm going to take the rocking chair away from you. And so what does she do? What do you think? The same thing. The exact same thing. And some of you are thinking, because she's 17 months old, get a grip. I would say, yeah, not your child. <laughs> and so, so, but what I would like to argue what I would like to argue is that even at 17 months old, her heart is bent toward designing her ways over all others. So I did what I said I would do and took the rocking chair away, trying to be consistent with my word, trying to be true to it. She didn't say, thank you, Daddy, for your love and kindness to me, <laughs> because she didn't see my order in the home as good. She saw it as an affront to her freedom. 
So instead, she screamed at the top of her lungs in disgust. I mean, you can picture the scene. Arms dropped by her side, head back, face to the sky, crying. What a wicked parent I was to that child. <laughs> I mean, that's what you feel, right? It's like, I just did something terrible, terrible to her. But I'm just doing what I said I would do. And as my daughter is toward me in childish things, so are we toward God in adult-like things. We say, when, when God means us good, we say, in effect, how dare you be this way to me? And if we only act in rebelling to the rule of God, then we can never respond in joy to the news that Jesus is king. And at Christmas time in particular, we rejoice in the reality that that king has come as a baby. And today we say, he will come again. He has not forgotten us. He has remembered his people and he will remember us. He says, our joy comes not from demanding our own destiny, but through humility and submission to the reign of Jesus. We trust that his reign is good and right and just and entirely better than our own. So here's what we've established so far. Rescued people are joyful people because they've been brought into the kingdom of God by the strength of their new king. And kingdom people delight in the reign of their king because it brings about a world that reflects his goodness and justice. We delight in God's rule because it reflects who he is, and we delight in God himself. That's what kingdom people do. They find their joy in their king. Our third reason for joy stems from Jesus as judge. The creation will rejoice because he's coming to judge the world in his righteousness. The creation will rejoice because he's coming to judge the world in his righteousness. Now, if I'm being honest, when I read the ending of this psalm, I didn't immediately connect judgment with joy. It was a little startling, actually. I mean, generally speaking, people don't like to talk about judgment. Maybe some of you have some kind of, of weird routine that you do, and, and you're about to do it before a, a friend for the first time. And so, so you preface by saying, don't judge me. Hey, no judgment here. And of course there's no judgment as long as it's reciprocated, right? I mean, you don't judge me, I won't judge you. Or maybe you think, I mean, who am I to judge anyway? Many of us, maybe even most of us, are not fans of judgment. So why should Jesus, as judge, make us joyful? First of all, creation rejoices in this judgment because the, the coming of this king means the restoration of the earth. And the third stanza, we see something very interesting taking place. I mean, this is very, very odd. God's people and the nations are singing before the Lord, the king. First it was Israel, and then the nations were invited to come in and sing before the king. This is a big deal. But now the created world joins in. The sea roars, the rivers clap, the hills sing, and they're roaring, clapping, and singing together before the Lord. And the reason why they rejoice in the coming king is because his coming will, will result in the renewal of all of his creation. Jesus is coming to make all things new, and this includes his creation. Now, if we go back to Genesis 3, what we notice is that the impact of sin has led to a series of broken relationships. We usually do pretty well to talk about at least two of them, but, but there's a third one that often gets left out. The first one is there's, there's brokenness between people and God. 
The second, there's brokenness between people and other people. But the third, there's brokenness between people and the created order, the created world. According to John Calvin, the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens and on the earth and on all creatures. Even the earth feels the effects of human rebellion and longs for the king to come, enact justice, and restore order forever. This is why when Paul talks about our future glory in Romans 8, he includes creation. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, until even now. Today the world continues to experience these pains of human rebellion. We experience famines and, and earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes. And it's in part because we have failed to advance God's plans for creation like we were made to do. We've exchanged his plans for our own, but one day, one day, Jesus will reorder every wrong thing in this world. And those who've experienced rescue and long for God's reign are filled with joy about Jesus' plans to renew all things to himself. In fact, Isaiah 11, 6-9 gives us an amazing picture of the kind of reordering of things that will be brought forth from the rule of Jesus' messianic king. He says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's nest. Now, all that sounds so spectacularly strange and entirely unlike anything that we've ever experienced before. I mean, why would we want this to be true? I don't want my child any, anywhere near a viper's nest. I don't want to be anywhere near a viper's nest. I imagine you don't either, unless you just have a thing about snakes. In which case, even still, But verse 9 explains how everything will change. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, one day the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth from the deepest, deepest fathom of the ocean floor to the highest mountain peak. Whether we take Isaiah literally or not, we know that this renewed creation will be entirely different in manner from anything we've ever experienced before. Everything in creation will be brought under submission to a single authority and dwell under the right judgment of God. When I was younger, I used to ask myself why certain things existed in the world. I mean, it's a great icebreaker question, right? Like, what's, what's the best thing in the world? What's the worst thing in the world? It's the most broad question you could think of. But then you begin to ask, why is the world filled with predators? Why are there wasps and, and bee stings and, and thorn bushes? I mean, poison ivy. Really? What's that about? <laughs> but what I never considered asking is, what if the things of the earth are just as disordered as I am? What if they are failing to fulfill the, the design and purpose God intended for them to have? What if honeybees never felt under threat, but instead were generous with their honeys, with their honey? What if, what if rose bushes didn't need thorns? 
what, what if there was something redemptive in value about poison ivy? I mean, what if that wasn't even supposed to be its real name? <laughs> it's hard to imagine a reordering of this kind, but I think God intends to do something like this when he restores the creation. Maybe not these things specifically, but if the child can play near the viper, having a generous honeybee doesn't seem so far-fetched, does it? That's not crazy. So Danny asked a few weeks ago, how long must we wait? And Lawrence will tell us next week, until our king of glory comes. And what I am telling you is that his coming is joy to the world. Now the last thing I wish to say about this section is that kingdom people also delight in the righteous judgment of God. It must be said again that righteousness refers to the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit giving the gift of justice to repentant sinners for salvation. We just talked about confession several weeks ago, and we recognize that Christians of all people should tell the truth about themselves. We're the most wicked of people, but thanks be to God that he has and is making us new. We say about ourselves what the, the rest of the world needs to hear. We are broken. We need renewal. So this is what I think it means that we rejoice in his coming judgment. This is why we're joyful about the coming judgment of God. It means that we recognize that our only claim before God rests on the sure righteousness given to us by Jesus through his power to save. Those who respond in joy are those who embrace this pardon. We do this by turning from our own way and embracing God's. We embrace his kingdom. Will you? Let me end by saying this. Psalm 98 invites you to see the Lord's offered salvation, to submit to his coming reign, and to embrace the pardon he gives in his judgment. This is what kingdom people do, and this is why kingdom people are joyful people. They can enter before the Lord, their King, and sing a new song that shouts, Jesus, my Savior, King, and Judge, has brought good news of great joy that has blessed all the earth. So I want to invite the band to come up. And as they come up, I want to, I want to pray for us. So church, this is, this is my Christmas prayer for us this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we, may we experience the joy that you give this Christmas through the coming of your Son. And would you strengthen us as your people to share that joy with all peoples that they might also experience the joy of Christ. Father, would you be glorified and that your glory be our joy this Christmas because you have provided rescue. God, your eternal reign is coming. You will come again, God. Would you come? And your rule is bringing justice and renewal to everything in your kingdom forever. God, we want that. Help us to want that. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.